be in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. While you're finding your place getting comfortable, let me introduce myself again for those of you who don't know me. My name is Ian O'Donnell. I'm the student pastor here uh, at FBC. And um, if you're a guest with us, I just want to say again, we're, we're so glad you were here with us today. I hope you feel welcomed. I hope you feel at home here. I hope you feel part of the family here because uh, that is what we hope and what we desire for each person who steps into um, our home week in and week out. So uh, without further ado, I want us to jump in, but just a, a little preface about this text. This is one of my favorite um, books and chapters and verses in all of the Bible. I don't know if you're, you're allowed to have that or not, but it, it's, it's true. Um, and a little bit just about my background. I grew up, I grew up in a church home and in a Christian family where I was surrounded by the things of Christ early on within my life. Um, I was I was a church, I was going to church often. I was in a small group. I went to the retreats. I went to the camps. Um, I even had like that, that story where they, they did an altar call and I prayed a prayer and I cried and it was emotional. It was dramatic. I mean, I, I'm in, in, in terms of Christianity and the, on the outside looking in, you would think I did the whole nine yards. Uh, but the reality is when I look at back, back at my life now, I was really good at putting on a face and knowing about the things of God, yet somehow, even in the midst of growing up within the church, completely missed Jesus. I mean, and it took a good friend who was willing to be honest with me and tell me like, hey, you're kind of living in the world and trying to put another foot in the church. And that doesn't, that doesn't work out when it comes to, to following Christ. And it took their honesty with me and pointing me to texts like this, where it, it helped me fully come to terms with and understand what it truly means to know Jesus rather than just know about Jesus. Because when I, when I think about like my, my past, where I come from, I, I was living in the horror of like that Judas Iscariot type of life. If you don't know who Judas is, Judas was the person who would eventually betray Jesus. And he has a crazy life in my, in my, I mean, when you think about it, because he walked with Jesus for three years. He saw everything Jesus did. And yet he somehow completely missed that he was the Son of God. He somehow completely missed what it meant to have a friendship with the living God. So my hope and my prayer for us today as a church family is that we would be able to know within the deepest parts of ourselves that we don't just know about Jesus, but that we know him, that we have a friendship with him, and that he is our world. Okay, so jumping in now, Ephesians 2, we'll start in verse 1, I'll read through verse 5. Okay, so Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1, and the word of God says this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the minds, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Let's pray together real quick. Father, I thank you so much for each person in this room. And Father, I pray that as, as we open your word and we study it, God, would you help us? Would you go before us? Would you illuminate our hearts and our ears and our minds? Would you help us understand what you're trying to help us see today? And God, as you, as you illuminate us, would you help us believe you? Would you help us trust you? Would you give us the courage and the faith to say, Jesus, you're right, you're best. We want to give you all of who we are. We don't want to know about you. We want to know 
you deeply, relationally, intimately, Jesus. Help us to come to know you for some of us for the first time today. Teach us today. And church family, I just want to invite you uh, to pray the same prayer for yourself. If you're willing, ask God in this, a couple seconds for yourself right now. Ask God to teach you today. Ask God to illuminate your heart. Ask God to bring what is dead in your life back to life again. Do it now. Father, we love you and we trust you. May your words and your name be remembered and not mine. And it's the great name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Well, about two weeks ago, uh, me and my wife, Callie, uh, celebrated seven months of marriage. Um, and I know for some people in the room today, that seems like absolutely nothing. Uh, but for, for me, I mean, it's, 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 been, it's brought out a, a, another marker of significance. We've been married this long. And for me, like, it's caused me to have some introspective introspection and a lot of times a reflection on my life. And I, I just, I, it makes me think about, like, little moments here and there. I'm like, I'm married. When that happened, like how did how did I get here? Like what, what? How did I go from who I was ten years ago to where I am now? And then it just makes you backtrack a little bit, right? And I think about like okay, I think about the past seven months, and I think about the wedding, and I think about the rehearsal dinner, and I think about all the planning and the anxiety that happened there, and I think about the engagement party and the proposal and all of the other steps and moments before leading all the way back to when I first met Callie. And I uh, I met Callie. We we were. We worked together at the same place, and I was I was working part time because I was still a senior at UT, and she just graduated from A and M, and uh, she came on full time. And Jesus helped separate that gap for those of you who are wondering. Um, and uh, and I, I remember when I first saw her, I was like, I'm interested, definitely, definitely interested. Um, and then I got to know her a little bit more in the office, and I was like, okay, I'm really interested now. And I just wanted to see what she was like outside the office. Um, so I, I asked her out to coffee, and, and you can even ask her. She didn't. She expected that conversation not to last for um, more than an hour, and it lasted four hours. So thank you, Holy Spirit, and amen to that. Rest is history. Um, but that coffee shop conversation led to date one, which led to date two, which then led to date three, and then it led to us being official, and we were dating, and a lot of that happened, like, like thinking about it. I was like, where did it all, where did it all start? Well, a lot of it began because we're, we were... We were a lot of things in common. We have a lot of similar interests, similar backgrounds, similar um, growing up in the same type of home and things like that. And uh, for me, I remember one of the one of the things that I loved about Callie from the beginning is that she loves to be outside. Uh, she is adventurous. She's outdoorsy. She likes to camp. She likes to hike. She likes to be in the mountains. Um, she likes to go out and explore. She loves to be adventurous. Um, even though she, I mean, like today's like today where it's a little colder, she would love to just snuggle up on the couch and watch Gilmore Girls for days. Um, at this point, it's been months, uh, but eventually she'll get to that point where she's going to pull me, she's going to pull me up and say, okay, we're going to go outside and walk. Even if it's just five minutes, I've got to get out of the house. And I love that about her. It makes it, helps me not be so lazy and lay on the couch all day because I could do that. Uh, but she, she helps us get out and go do stuff, which is awesome. I love it. Um, and for her, she, I, as far as I know, she liked, uh, about me that I, I like to be outside as well, but not necessarily in the adventure outdoorsy type, but more just than I like sports a lot type. So I'm, I'm competitive. I like, I love basketball, football, baseball, softball, even, even track, not even season anymore. Like I, if you want to compete, 
I'm in. I just like to be outside going and doing stuff. And um, she liked that about me from the beginning. And then over time, though, especially if you're in a relationship, you've been in a relationship for a while, if you're married, you understand that over time, you learn more things about the person that you never really thought you never thought you would see. I mean, and they aren't necessarily like make it or break it type of stuff, but it's just like I would have never guessed. I would have never guessed that about you. And for Callie, uh, she discovered that I love all things in the comic book world. Um, uh, there's never, there's never really a thing. I feel like I'm being judged right now when I say that. Come on. <laughs> yeah. But I, I do. I mean, from, since I was a kid, um, I love reading comics, love watching the cartoons, and then now there are TV shows, and now there are movies. Like, it is a great time to be a comic book fan. Um, but she has discovered that one of my favorite characters in comic book world is Captain America. Um, I love, love that character, love how they've portrayed him in the movies thus far. Um, if you didn't see Captain America Civil War this past summer, you missed out. I'm just gonna say it. Like, uh, you missed out. Um, but before that, before that movie, there was a movie that came out in the Captain America series called Captain America Winter Soldier. And that will for sure be one of my favorite movies I've ever seen in my entire life. Highly encourage you to see it. Um, it helped like solidify, like, yes, this character is legit. Um, but one reason like that, amongst other things, that that movie sticks out despite like all the twisting in it. Um, there's a conversation that happens between... Uh, Captain America and Black Widow, and I know I'm flexing my nerd right now, but hang with me. Um, they have this conversation, they're on the road to there, they're going to a destination, and uh, they have this conversation talking about truth. They get on the subject of truth, and uh, this is what Black Widow tells Captain America, and she says, you know, truth is based on circumstance. It's not all things to all people all the time. She said, truth is based on circumstance. It's not all things to all people all the time. Now, I, I just want to say from the beginning, I don't necessarily agree with that. I don't. I don't. Like, if you're, if you're a believer of Jesus in the Bible, we understand truth does apply to all people. It's not based, it's not based on perspective or circumstance. But her statement is very much a post-enlightenment type of thinking. Meaning that, okay, truth is just based on your upbringing, where you come from, your culture, your circumstance, your perspective. Um, and even though I don't agree with it, I thought it was hilarious because that statement alone actually aligns with the text we're talking about today. Because the truth is, there is actually a circumstance that binds everybody in the room today. There is a, there is a commonality that unites everybody, not only in the room today, but actually on the planet that we're going to walk through and discuss as we dive into the book of Ephesians, specifically chapter 2. All right? So with all that said, let's jump in. Ephesians 2, we're going to start in verse 1. This is the Holy Spirit through the writer Paul originally to the church of Ephesus and still very much applicable to us today. We read in verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And that right there is our common circumstance. That apart from a relationship with Christ, we are dead because of our trespasses and sins. Because of our rebellion against a holy, perfect, righteous God. And we've decided, okay, God, we can live life better without you. We could actually be be probably be better gods than you. We have caused our souls to die. Okay, and that, now I want to I make be extra clear here. Like specifically, I said soul because I know when I when I originally read this and says, "And you were dead in the trespasses and sins," I'm like, I have I know I have people, even myself. I'm like, hey, preacher guy, like, like you see that clearly? I'm alive. What are you talking about? I was like, well, the Bible is talking about here is it's not talking about our physicality. It's trying to address our spirituality. It's trying to address the most important part of who we are, which is our heart of hearts, the deepest parts of us, which is our soul. 
And what the Bible is trying to say because of trespasses and sins, and basically what that means, to, to trespass means to go to a place you were never meant to go. Like if you see no, no trespassing, you probably shouldn't go there. There should be an asterisk like, hey, no trespassing, especially in Texas because we have guns. And then it sins, don't go, like sin is you did, went and did things we were never meant to do, right? So to trespass, we went to places we were never meant to go. And we sinned. We did things we were never meant to do. And because of this, it has caused sin to overwhelm the world. And now by birth, we have a soul that is not alive. It is actually, by contrast, dead. And it is apart from God. And without a relationship with Christ, it is impossible to come back to life again. And I just want to make it abundantly clear what this means for us. Because I think, if you're like me, we try to... We try to change the wording a little bit. It's like, okay, what you mean by that is like, you're not necessarily like, by, by dead, it means like, okay, we're just, we're just kind of bad people. Like, we, we do good, but every once in a while we're prone to mess up. Like, that's, that's what you mean. The reality is like, no, like, when it, when the Bible says dead, it's not talking about, oh, we're kind of good or we're kind of bad or somewhere in between. No, it simply means, no, apart from Christ, we're no, we're not in the middle. We are dead. Our souls are dead. And this death is something that we all feel. It's something that we experience all the time. It's that feeling you have in your heart, the deepest part of who you are, that you feel like just never seems to get filled. Like no matter what you do, no matter what you run to, it just always seems like something in your life is lacking. That is this death I am speaking of in your life, a hole in your heart that nothing in this world just seems to be able to satisfy. And then maybe the worst part, most tragic, is that when we die with a soul that is dead, we don't go to heaven, we go to the place nobody ever wants to talk about. So this is important not only for how we live presently, but also in light of our eternity. This is something we need to discuss, it's something we need to talk about. And again, I want to press you and ask, do not just assume the state of your heart today. Do not be like me and just carry around these assumptions of just because I'm around the things of Christ that you know Jesus. Judas is always our prime example that we can be around the things of God and the things of Christianity and still miss the point. All right? So I want to I want to keep going here and I just want to I want to press in a little bit and talk about this imagery of why the Bible uses this idea of death. Because it's pretty vivid, right? It's like if we were to use other words, I don't think we would choose that one, but there's a reason why God has that for us in his word. That's what he describes our hearts apart from him. So I don't know how many of you have been around a, a dead body before? I pray you haven't. Um, but a, a significant part of my story is um, in high school, I had to attend five funerals of friends and family that I deeply care about. Um, and each of those are just a very surreal moment because, of, I mean, if you read in Genesis, we were, we were never meant to die. I don't know if you knew that, but death was never a part of the plan of God. We die because of sin. For the wages of sin is death. And that's why, that's why we die, not only physically, but spiritually. But even this past summer, um, I had a friend of mine who I, I grew up with, and we played football together. We played uh, baseball together in high school. He was a year older than me, and he passed away this past summer from cancer. And it's just a crazy, surreal moment, especially because how close he was to me in age and how, how young he was. But it was one of those moments where he had, a, he had a traditional funeral, so his casket was open, and there was time to pay tribute to the life and the body and pray for the families, pray for my own grieving heart, and ask the Lord just to help us all in that time. And it's a moment where you, you have time to just look at the body. And I know, like, uh, they'll, if you've ever been to a funeral, like, you'll see they put makeup on the face to try to act like what 
what isn't a dead body is is it like what is a dead body is somehow not a dead body anymore just by putting makeup on it but there's no escaping it because when i look into him i look at him i see a life and a body that used to be full of joy full of expression full of laughter full of zeal so much excitement about everything going on in his world suddenly completely cold And it's motionless, and there's no feeling, there's no action. It's just simply there. It's just existing. It's just existing. And that's what the Bible is trying to help us come to terms with and understand that that is who we are. That is who we are without knowing God. And I think if some of us, if you were to be honest with yourself today, you feel just like that. You feel that today. And I think maybe there's some people in the room who are as well who are trying to act like you're not willing to be honest with yourself and you're trying to act like everything's okay. And the reality is you're just trying to put makeup on something that is already dead. And you're trying to put a facade and fake everybody out like everything's okay, my life is good. But the reality is like, no, like something is deeply wrong. There's something like the most important part of you is missing something, namely life. And that's what the Bible is trying to help us to do. It's encouraging us. Like, no, let's be honest today. Let's be willing to step into the harder spaces. Let's be willing to have the difficult conversation and talk about like, okay, are you really alive? Or is something missing in our hearts? Because we feel this. And we, we can, we can, if we pay attention to our lives, we can see how we run to different things to fix it. We run to fitness because we think of, oh, if we just make our image better, that'll, that'll make this go away. We run to success. We think, okay, if I have, if I just make my way up in the company and if I have more toys, more achievements, more, more money, a better house, a better car, a better boat, like all these things, it'll just make, it'll make it all go away. Or we, we run to relationships. If I just, if I can just get married, if I can just find that girl or that guy, that will help fix and overcome this hole that is within my life that nothing has been ever to make it work. Maybe this relationship will finally do it. And for some, I mean, I kid you not, people run to religion. We think, okay, if I just, if I can just fix my life up and make myself a better person and I start doing a bunch of good things, you think like, okay, that's what's going to fix it. When the reality is you're just building a castle of self-righteousness and you're not fixing that dull, numb pain within your heart and within your life. And let me just say, every single thing I listed isn't bad. It's not. They were gifts from God for us. But if we try to run to these things to fix us and to heal us and make us whole, Rather than having God, the person who is the only person who can do it, fill that void in within our life, it's never going to work. It's never going to add up. And that's what we see here going on in verses 2 and 3. That this deadness, that this, this, this soul, the state of our soul has carried over then into our actions and what we do. So reading in verse, we'll read, start in verse 1 again. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And what all of that is trying to say is that because of this, we're prone to really just trust and believe in whatever we think and whatever we feel, right? 
I mean, that's, that's predominant in our culture today. What I feel is what I should do. And we're totally chained and slaves to our passions. I mean, that's what the culture is constantly telling us. Hey, don't resist it. You should just embrace what you feel. Like, if you feel it, you should just go do it. That's okay. Just go do it. But if we run with that logic long enough, it's harmful, not only to us, but to the people around us. We begin to manipulate people. We begin to hurt people because we're always just trying to gratify what I think is best and what I feel is best. Second of all, you can't always trust what you feel and you can't always trust what you think. I kid you not. If, because I trusted my feelings led to the first time I broke up with Callie. That, that literally happened. And then, it, and then ten, I had 10 days where I had plenty of friends be like, you're an idiot. And then I had to tell myself, I'm an idiot. And then I had to come back to her and say, I'm sorry, I'm an idiot. Can we, can we make this work again? And she, I mean, it worked. Right? That's what happens. Like if we were to be honest with ourselves, we think things that aren't always true. And we feel things that aren't always true. That's why Jeremiah 17, 9 says what it says. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it, right? I mean, and we see this happen all the time. I mean, just another example. Think about with scripture. There are so many times where like, well, I just don't think God would be that way. I feel like God would never do that. According to who? You? I mean, as if like, this, as if you who've been on the earth 20 to 50 years has somehow conjured up who God is in comparison to the thousands of years of history and documents and evidence that we have saying otherwise. But that's what we have, right? There's a lot of people who are like, well, I just can't, I just don't think God would do that, so I can't believe that. And I was like, whether you believe it or not doesn't change whether it's true or not. This is still true, right? But that's our temptation. I don't think that way. I don't feel that way. So it probably just isn't true. Let me, let me give you another example of way maybe uh, we can all relate. And this example I use often with our students. Um, I feel and think often that whenever I sin, that God is angry with me. And that he's disappointed with me. And that he's frustrated with me. Anybody else feel that way? Oh, everybody else in the room is perfect today. Got it. All right. I mean, right? Isn't that how it usually goes? Of like, oh, I, I gave into that sin again. That one thing I promised myself and I promised Jesus I would never do again, I messed up again. You say things that you wish you could, that you, as soon as you said it, you're just reaching for the words you wish you could take back and you know there's no taking it back now. Parents, maybe that you've said something to your spouse or to your kids this week that you know you should be asking their forgiveness for. That you've been, that you know the Lord has been calling you to spend time with His Word, to join a group, to serve, to pray. And you've been pushing it off, pushing it off, pushing it off. And because of that, because of all of these things piling on, piling on, adding up, you begin to just feel this weight of guilt and shame and condemnation just adding on to your life. And you think this is how God sees us. God is giving us that glare right now because of how much we've sinned. You know that, you know that look your parents gave you when you know, you, you knew you did the thing you shouldn't have done? We feel like God is just giving us that stare all the time. We feel that way, right? But the reality is, if we were to line up with the Bible and what the gospel says, I'm the liar. 
Because if we were to truly believe in what the gospel says, it tells us God no longer sees my imperfection. God no longer sees my sinfulness. He no longer sees the wretched man that I am, but he sees the perfect, blameless, spotless sacrifice of Jesus. I mean, that's the beauty of the gospel. That when God looks at me, he doesn't see all my screw-ups. He doesn't see all my mistakes. He sees the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Christ. That's why in the Bible, if you see the word propitiation, that's what it is. It's the glorious substitute of Jesus imputing his righteousness upon us so that we can now be adopted into the family of God. And when we sin, he no longer glares at us. We're not enemies, but he forgives us. He loves us and he draws us closer to himself. And a pastor up in Dallas says it like this, and I think it's perfect. He says, you want to know how somebody, like as a way of somebody truly believes the gospel or not? Look at how they respond to their sin. Because those who truly trust the gospel and believe in it, when they mess up, they're not going to run away from God. They're going to run to Him. They're going to run to Him all the more. Because they know they've been forgiven. They know that Christ covered it. He paid it all. We are white as snow. Sin no longer has a mark upon us. Because of Jesus, we can now approach the throne even as sinners, knowing we are loved and set free from our former condemnation of sin. Right? So we can't always trust what we think. We can't always trust what we feel. Yet, that is what we're prone to believe. Because of our soul, because of what's dead in us. And then we, we move on to verse 3. I think this is, this is, this is hysterical in some ways. But it says, it says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, I, I kid you not, I read that and I'm like, man, I really wish I had that line in middle school. So I'm like, my parents are like, you're, you're, hey, hey, Ian, you're stupid. Your shirt looks dumb. I'm like, yeah? Well, you're a child of wrath. <laughs> I mean, you read that and it's harsh, right? Like, it, it's like, this language is like, can we use a different word here? Like, Holy Spirit, why, why that? Well, I think, I think for some of us, we have an issue with it because more often than not, we think we're born neutral. We think we're born neutral. And what I, what I mean by that is we're born with this idea of like, okay, we're born somewhere in the middle. We're not necessarily good or bad, but based on our upbringing, based on our parents, based on maybe siblings we had, our culture, our community, what school you went to, the teachers, the coaches, and your friends, that determines whether you're going to be a good person or a bad person, right? That's what, I mean, that's more often than not, that's what I see in TV. That's what I see in books. That's what I, that's what I learned growing up. And that's what a lot of us learned. But the reality is, if we were to like compare it to the Bible and say, okay, Bible, work God's word, Jesus, is that true? No. The Bible would actually say we actually are born with a bent away from God. Not towards him, but actually away from him. We're prone to rebel against him. We're prone to spit in his face rather than trust him and love him. We're actually born with a, with a bent and an inclination towards evil, towards wickedness, towards wrath. Now, I know there are probably at least one person in the room here who's like, I don't know about that. And I'm with you because I thought the same thing. But let me share an illustration that was really helpful for me in coming to trust uh, this text. So when I was about four years old, um, I remember a time where we were going to a, a party, a birthday party the next day, and my mom was making a cake, and she pulls the cake out of the oven, and it was chocolate, and it was glorious, and I hope I'm making everybody hungry. And we're, and she sets it all on the, she sets it on the counter, and 
I smell it and it's delightful and I want it. So I give her my, like my, my best four year old puppy dog eyes and smile. And my mom, can I have some? And she says no and it didn't work. Um, but she, she, we, we carry on the rest of the day and then we, we go to bed. And then in the middle of the night, I wake up and I'm like, huh, I'm a little hungry right now. And I know what's in the kitchen. And if my parents are in their room, the door is closed, I know what I can go get. So I get out of bed and I, I go into the kitchen and I'm four, so I, I can't reach the plates or get silver out to cut me, cut myself a nice piece. So I just reach up, get a four year old finger full, put it in my mouth, walk away happy as can be and slept like a baby. Now, the next day, uh, my mom calls for me and she says, Ian, and I'm like, yeah, mommy. She said, hey, did you, uh, did you eat some of the cake last night? I'm like, no, it was fairway. And Fairway was our weenie dog. I didn't think it through. I didn't think it through. Um, and because of that, because I lied to my mom, uh, she spanked me and disciplined me and sent me off to my room. And then I responded to that with, nobody disciplines Ian Everett O'Donnell. Nobody gets away with that. So I go lay on my bed, which was next to a wall. I lay on my bed, put my feet up against the wall, and just start kicking it mercilessly. And then my stepdad came in and showed me who's boss, and that was that. Now, why tell you all of that? Why tell you all that? Well, I want you to think about something. Do you think my parents taught me, hey, Ian, when you are asked for the facts, when you're asked for the truth, that you should lie to them and tell them something completely different instead? No, they never taught me that. Do you think my parents ever taught me like, hey, Ian, when you don't get your way and you're not getting what you want, you should throw the biggest hissy fit the world has ever seen until you get your way. Do you think they ever taught me that? No. Do you think I, do you think I ever came home one day and saw my parents in an argument and then when one of them wasn't getting their way, they start rolling on the floor, pouting, screaming, and crying? It would have been hilarious. But no, I never saw that. So where did it come from? Why was it my inclination and my response to rather tell the truth I wanted to tell a lie? Why, when I was disciplined rightly, did I want to respond in rage and anger? Maybe it's because by nature I'm a child of wrath. And before you think, maybe that's you, Ian, and that's fair. <laughs> Parents, think of your kids. I'm, I'm assuming you are not teaching them how to be selfish and to cry and scream and fight and bite when they don't get what they want. And I'm praying they don't see, they're not seeing that happen at home, right? So where's it coming from? Maybe we're by nature children of wrath. Maybe there's something in us that was supposed to be alive, but it's unfortunately dead, and it has overflowed into the deepest parts of our lives. I think that's why Psalm 51.5, David declares this. He says, behold, he says, look up, focus quickly. I was brought forth in iniquity. I was brought forth in darkness. I was brought forth in sin. And in sin did my mother conceive me. It says, from, from conception... I was born with a soul that is dark, that doesn't long for the things of God, but actually longs for the things of self, to live solely by the passions of our flesh, by our body and our mind. Now, I don't, I don't, know, I don't know about you guys, but whenever I, every time I, I see this and I read this text, there's something in the deepest parts of me that just starts screaming and going crazy because I'm like, I don't want to stay here. I don't want to stay dead. 
I don't want my life to constantly be a game of me trying to wrestle against my flesh and my thoughts and my feelings and me losing over and over and over again. I don't want to stay dead. I want to spend eternity with God. I want to come back to life. How does that happen for me? How do I, I want to, I want to, I want my marriage to get better. I want to solve my debt problem. I want to conquer my anxiety. I want to overcome my fear. How does all of this come about? And then, The peril and the tragedy of verses 1 through 3 means the glory and the light of verses 4 and 5. I love it so much. Verse 4, we see the greatest two-word combination you'll ever see in Scripture. And it says, but God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ By grace, you have been saved. Do we we see this? That even though we wanted nothing to do with God and we rebelled against Him and we warred against Him, we spat in His face time and time again, He still enters our story. He still lovingly comes down and enters our circumstance and demonstrates His love, His mercy, and His care for us. And then He saves us through this beautiful word called grace. By grace, you have been saved. Now, I think that comes to mind, begs the question, what is grace? What is grace? Well, this is the illustration I, I heard growing up, and I, I love it. It really helped me come to understand it. But say you have this hypothetical situation, and I'm going to say it again, it's hypothetical. But say I'm driving down, driving down the road, and I'm approaching a school zone, and I'm going double the school zone speed limit. And I'm texting and driving. And I'm going, I'm flying, and I am nearly hit a kid, and I finally get pulled over. Right? And the cop comes over, and I'm like, think about, okay, what do I deserve in this moment? I probably deserve my license revoked, maybe some jail time. Like, at, at the very least. But say the cop comes over, we have a conversation, and uh, he ends up saying, like, hey, things happen, I'm going to trust you, don't do it again, and he lets me go with a warning. Like, even that, even that scenario in itself is kind of crazy because I don't know how many of you have been pulled over before. I hope you haven't, but I have. Um, and I've had my warnings. And whenever you get a warning, you celebrate. Of like, I know I deserve the ticket, and I got a warning instead. That's crazy. I'm celebrating. I'm going to tell everybody, right? Now, let's, let's, that, that was, that's something that I call, I think, more applies to mercy. That's compassion and kindness and forgiveness. Um, let's talk about grace. So let's, same scenario, let's, but let's, let's just up the ante a little bit. So say I'm driving 100 through the school zone, right over, right over by Wimberley, and I swerve, I, only, I almost hit two students, and I finally, I finally get pulled over. Now I think I deserve in that moment is the cop to come over and pop me in both my legs, and that can, we can just call it a day from there, Right? Or at the very least, he takes me to jail and I don't drive ever again. But imagine if the cop came up to me and he said, Hey, you're a crazy person and you probably should never drive again. And I respond like, I know, I agree. But he responds and says, I'm going to trust you don't do this again. So I'm going to let you off with a warning. And on top of that, here's, here's 200 bucks. I mean, that, that's crazy, right? I mean, how, how ludicrous is it that, like, knowing I fully deserve this consequence, like, I know what should be coming to me, yet instead, I was given forgiveness 
and blessing and gift on top of that? What does that mean? That doesn't even make any sense. And that is the scandal of grace that we find in the Bible. This reality that we deserve nothing but separation from God. We deserve nothing but this chasm and this canyon to stay fixed upon Him. We don't, we don't deserve to spend eternity with Him. We deserve to be separated from Him in hell forever. If we were to be honest, that is what we deserve. But it is by His grace and His grace alone that He is able to set us free. That He is able to bring us home. That He is able to change us and transform us and renew us again. And that's this beautiful thing we see. That's why grace is so incredible. And the best thing about it is that you and I had nothing to do with it. I mean, look at verse 8. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. So I know for a lot of us, like, like I mentioned before, we try to run to so many things to try to bring us back to life. But it never worked. And we, we reach out. I'm like, maybe friends can do it. Maybe family can do it. And you realize, like, we, nothing seems to be able to do it. If we can't do it and they can't do it, who can do it? God and God alone. It is His gift to us. Why? We don't deserve it exactly. That's what makes it grace. That's what makes it grace. But how do we even have a chance here? What, where, did the, where did the mercy come from? Where did the great love of God come from? Where did the grace come from? It comes from Jesus. Because Jesus was willing to lay down his life, to come down from his throne in heaven, where everything's fine in heaven. There's no suffering there. There's no persecution there. There's no crazy there. He steps into our world. And he experienced the sin. He experiences the suffering of the world while still remaining completely sinless. He never messed up once. And by definition, he's the one person who didn't deserve to die, yet he's the one who hung on a cross for you and me and took the death that we deserve. And through his dying and then him rising and overcoming the tyranny of sin and death, you and I can now embrace and experience this beautiful grace. And I I just want to assure you and remind you, look at the text. It says... But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead. I think there's so many people who believe in the lie of like, oh, I just got to get myself a little bit better and then God will love me. Then God will save me. Then God will relieve me. If I just fix things up in my life and then start coming to church, then start serving, then start being part of a group, that's when God is going to do something. He's like, no, no, no. God did not die for a better future version of you. He died for the worst version of yourself that you could imagine. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, we could not help ourselves. We were completely hopeless, in a casket, in the ground, completely forgotten, had no chance. And God enters our story, our circumstance, and makes a way for us to come back to life again. And he says there's one way. End of verse 5 says, We were dead in our trespass, and we were made alive together with Jesus. With Christ. Which means life is impossible. It is impossible for our souls to go from dead back to life again without knowing and possessing a relationship and a friendship with the Son of God. And I know for some people, I mean, like, that's the lamest thing on earth. I was like, are you kidding me? 
The creator of the universe, the person who holds the, the world by the, by the universe, by the word of his power, came to save you and wants to know you and have a relationship with you. That is the greatest gift that you and I could ever experience. Why not come and submit and follow and trust in Jesus? Because that's what's, off, that's what's offered to us today. I mean, growing up, and I grew up in the church. I grew up in the Christian home, and I know I was, I always thought, you know what? Church is about going from bad to good, or I just need to go from bad to just a little bit better. But what we see in the gospel is it's about God rescuing people who could never rescue themselves. It's about God coming into our world, reaching into our graves, and taking the dead and bringing them back to life. Christianity is not bad people becoming good. It's dead people coming back to life again. And that's the beauty and the power that we see in the gospel. And where sin came to give us an eternal grave, Jesus gave, came to give us an eternal life. So friends, I just want to extend and plea and ask, is your soul alive? Because there is nothing from keeping you from accepting this grace today. It is a free gift. There's nothing you have to do but believe and accept Nothing. It is free. Jesus covered it. Jesus paid for it. All we have to do is accept it. And then everything you've been longing for in this world is found this morning in the Son of God filling the gap, closing the chasm, and filling that hole in your heart. And now because of Jesus, our common circumstance no longer has to be death because of sin, but it can now be life in Christ. So church, I want to beg you, I want to plead with you. Be made alive together with Christ this morning. Don't walk away just assuming like I did. Don't walk away just assuming this is where I'm at with God and I know I'm, I know I'm good. Don't do that. Assure your state with the God of the universe. Be assured this morning that my soul is alive and well and Jesus is my king and I want nothing less. Remind yourself again, because we are prone to wander. We're prone to forget. Take time before you leave with Jesus that your soul was dead and he's brought it back to life because that is the invitation. By grace, we have been saved. Take heart and take joy.